Welcome to Timothy Eden Memorial Church, a place for life. Connect, participate, celebrate. I want to take a moment just to thank Bill Melvin, who is our liturgist today. Bill is the chair of the Christian Education Committee, sits on council and we're always grateful when he can step in and be our liturgist. Um, we're grateful for his beautiful, heartfelt prayers that he writes. So thank you, Bill. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, we are so thankful for your holy word, for your scriptures that speak to us and guide us, that challenge us and lift us up. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. You are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Well, of course, today is Mother's Day, and we're going to take we're taking a little bit of an unusual turn uh, this morning for Mother's Day and looking at the story of the loving bond between a mother and her daughter-in-law. Now I love the book of Ruth. I love the book of Ruth for so many reasons, but not the least of the reasons is because I also have a wonderful mother-in-law, a gem of a mother-in-law, and I would gladly move to England and look after her in her old age if she didn't already have seven wonderful children of her own all doting on her and looking after her. She's very special and we'll certainly be calling her today. The story of Ruth is unlike any other book in the Bible. There's no real clearly, clearly stated theology. No, no one saying this is what God did for the people of Israel. It seems like it's not really a story about God at all. It's about Ruth. For that matter, God is hardly even mentioned in the book at all. But the, but the book of Ruth is a gem within the body of Judeo-Christian writings. It's a gracious and endearing short story or folk tale about an ordinary woman and her mother-in-law. Even Moses and Abraham, the great fathers of faith, didn't have a whole book named after them. Saul and David and Solomon are all lumped together under the heading of kings. Samuel gets a book, and Isaiah and Jeremiah and a bunch of prophets have books named for them. But Ruth is not a prophetess, and she's not a queen or seemingly anyone of any significance. And yet, she has her own book in the Old Testament. Now, some of you may already know why. But when I asked the Bible study group on Tuesday if they had read the book of Ruth, many had not. And I don't, I'm not uh, pointing fingers because until I started seminary, I hadn't read the book of Ruth either. It's this little book in the middle of the Old Testament. So I'm guessing that there are many people here today who have also not read the book of Ruth. Like many of the Old Testament writings, the book of Ruth begins, the very first words, 
put the story in its context, telling us when this happened. And it says, in the days when the judges ruled. And it will turn out to be important that we know that. Judges in Israel were administrators of justice in the tradition of Moses. So Moses, when he was leading the people out of Egypt through the, uh, through the uh, wilderness, while still in the desert, had appointed judges from each of the tribes to help him adjudicate the people's quarrels and complaints and, um, and conflicts. All of the other neighboring nations had kings. So they had cl this clear authority figure over the nation. But Israel had always maintained that God alone was their king. And so they had judges to mediate the covenant between them and God. After and Before Ruth is the book of Judges, and then Ruth, and then after the book of Ruth comes the book of 1 Samuel. And that is where we will see Saul appointed the first king of Israel. So this brief little opening line tells us a lot. It tells us that this story happened before the time when Israel demanded a king. And I want you to remember that because it's going to be key to understanding why Ruth gets her own book. As the story begins, we read that a good Jewish family from Bethlehem, and we know Bethlehem, right? Good family from Bethlehem flee their home because of a famine. And they end up in the country of Moab, which is on the east side of the Dead Sea. As a neighboring country, there had sometimes been some conflict between Israel and the Moabites, but most of the time, the Hebrews mingled peacefully with their neighbors and started to learn the art of farming from them as they uh, evolved from a nomadic or pastoral way of life and became an agricultural society. So Elimelech and Naomi go to the fertile land of Moab with their two sons, Malon and Kilion, and Elimelech dies and then the sons marry, and they take Moabite wives, foreign wives. So this is unusual for, for Israel. They take Moabite wives, Orpah and Ruth. And then after 10 years of marriage, the two sons die as well, leaving three women with no children as widows. Naomi is now the head of this household and she is living in a land where she has no family. So within a few short verses, we have come to learn that this is a story about vulnerability. Because in those times, a woman with no father and no husband and no son to take care of her was destitute. There were no pr protections in place for a woman in this situation, and she would often have to resort to begging or even sometimes to prostitution to survive. And here we have three such women. Being in such a precarious condition and hearing that the famine is over in her homeland, 
Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth begin the journey back to Bethlehem, where Naomi would be hoping that she could count on the charity of some extended family members. So her parents are long gone. Her husband was gone. Her only two sons dead. Back in her homeland, she probably had nephews, but rarely were families then looking for another mouth to feed, especially one that had no way of contributing income to the household. They would be under no obligation, unlike a father or a husband or a son, they would be under no obligation to look after her. So she is totally dependent on their charity. Essentially, she is begging. And it's possible, it's possible that if she goes back, they will look after her. But the chances of them taking in three widows, two of whom are foreigners with no no other family of their own, was almost impossible. So Naomi is vulnerable. And if Ruth and Orpah go with her, they are even more vulnerable. In verses 11 to 13, Naomi invokes, it's, <laughs> these verses sound a little strange to us, but Naomi invokes what's called the law of the leveret. It kind of sounds funny to our ears that she's, she's talking about going out that night and getting pregnant and having baby sons and waiting for them to grow up so that they can marry Orpah and Ruth. But it's part of the law of Leverett that stipulated that if a man died and left no children, his brother must marry his widow and give her children in the deceased brother's name to preserve his name in the family lineage. So Naomi's two sons, only two sons, are both dead. So there's no one to fulfill that law for them. The only ones who would have the obligation then to look after these women are not born yet. The solution, she decides, is that Ruth and Orpah must return to their own families and leave her to go back to Bethlehem alone. She says they are still of childbearing age. Women married In that time, women married very soon after puberty. So after 10 years of marriage, they're probably still only in their early to mid-20s. So they could still take new husbands in their own land. And until they did, they would have protection and provision in their parents' homes. What Naomi says is so reasonable and so obviously correct that Orpah says, okay. She accepts the wisdom of it, and she heeds her mother-in-law's advice. But Ruth refuses, embracing the vulnerability, and she heads off to this unknown land where she has no family, to Naomi's home in Bethlehem. Being in a vulnerable situation where the outcome is uncertain, and you have no real way of expecting that things will turn out okay, in in fact, they could turn out disastrously, is really uncomfortable for us. For many of us, the insecurity would feel almost unbearable. 
Ruth's vulnerability makes me think of the work of psychology uh, researcher Dr. Brene Brown, and she's written many books. She's a very popular speaker. And in her book called Dare to Lead, Brown opens with the words, you can't get to courage without rumbling with vulnerability. You can't get to courage without rumbling with vulnerability. That was certainly the case for Ruth, and it's true for us too. By rumbling with vulnerability, Brown means that you don't avoid it, that you lean into it, being both afraid and brave at the same time. We all experience times in our lives where we feel vulnerable. Your first date after a divorce, trying to get pregnant after a miscarriage, starting a business, watching your child leave for a university, apologizing to your spouse for something you said or did, waiting for the doctor to call you back, moving to a new home, a new city, a new country, giving someone feedback, getting feedback, getting fired, having to fire someone else. There are countless ways throughout our lives that we experience vulnerability, and there are as many ways of coping with vulnerability as there are people. Most coping techniques, though, are more likely avoidance techniques because it goes against our natural instincts to lean into vulnerability, to accept it, to rumble with it. C.S. Lewis said it well. He said, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. It is certainly natural and understandable to avoid vulnerability and to protect ourselves. That's what Orpah did, and we don't blame her, right? But her only claim to fame now is that the future mother of a famous talk show host misspelled her name, and now scripture readers around the world call her Oprah. <laughs> Kudos to Jim, who got, it <laughs> well, who got it right this morning. Ruth, who selfishly embraced vulnerability, is the one who got a book of the Bible named for her, and whose story we're still reading today. In verses 16 to 18, 
we read Ruth's strong declaration of undying love for and commitment to Naomi. And she goes back to Bethlehem in Judah with her mother-in-law. Now, Naomi is not a blood relative of, of Ruth. They're not from the same tribe. They're not the same religion. Yet Ruth makes a permanent commitment to stay by her side. She leans into vulnerability instead of turning back to the safer and more reasonable option. Why did she do that? Well, she did it out of love. When you read the rest of the story, and it's only four chapters long, so I really recommend uh, pulling it out and reading it. When you read it, it begins to make sense. And here's a spoiler alert. I'm going to read to you the ending <laughs> of the book of Ruth. Don't worry, it won't really spoil the story for you. The end of the book of the Ruth says, uh, the book of Ruth says, so Boaz, so Boaz, and you'll if you read it, you'll learn who Boaz is. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went to her, and the Lord gave her a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, is more, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So this is why this book is in the Bible and why it's located right between Judges and Samuel. Ruth, who wasn't even an Israelite, by embracing vulnerability becomes this central figure in the history of Israel, linking the time of the judges to the time of the kings, and especially the greatest king, David, whose city, of course, is Bethlehem, Naomi's home. By marrying Ruth, Boaz, who is a distant relative of Naomi's, by marrying Ruth, he fulfills the Leveret Law and thus guarantees Naomi's security. Ruth made herself vulnerable, risked her own security for the chance to protect her mother-in-law. And God honored that willingness, and God protected them both. And furthermore, blessed the entire nation of Israel through her and her descendants. Although the theology of the book of Ruth is not stated systematically, as I said, the story really does tell us a lot about God. It tells us of a God who can be trusted in the face of vulnerability. The theology may not be stated overtly, but we read in this book a living demonstration 
of the undying love of God who honors our faith by using our willingness to be vulnerable to do great things for humanity. And Ruth's story doesn't end there, right? Ruth's story continues into the New Testament as well. I want to read to you the opening verses of the Gospel of Matthew. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. Ruth is one of the few, very few mothers who is mentioned in this genealogy. And what links these few women is that they all courageously embraced vulnerability. Jesus was descended from women who were vulnerable. And God honored their vulnerability because in Jesus, God himself embraced vulnerability in order to redeem us all. We can turn to God and trust in God when we feel vulnerable because God was willing to be vulnerable for us. And God honors our willingness to make ourselves vulnerable for the sake of love. Brene Brown, who I mentioned, uh, is a mother herself, and she tells the story of her young daughter being betrayed by a friend at school, and she, the daughter came home sobbing and declared that she would never trust anyone again. Brown reminded her daughter that her teacher kept a marble jar in the classroom, and when students did admirable things, marbles were added to the jar, and when they misbehaved or did dishonorable things, marbles were taken out. Brown said to her daughter, We trust the people who have earned the marbles over time in our life. Whenever someone supports you or is kind to you or sticks up for you or honors what you share with them as private, you put marbles in their jar. When people are mean or disrespectful, or share your secrets, marbles come out. We look for the people who, over time, put marbles in and in and in until you look up one day and they're holding a full jar. Those are the folks you tell your secrets to. Those are the folks you trust with information that's important to you. More than any other, even when we don't see it, God's marble jar is filled to overflowing, and God can be trusted. We can trust God to sustain us and to bless us in our times of vulnerability. 
And then we also bless others, just as Ruth blessed Naomi and all of Israel, and now all of us too. Thanks be to God. Amen.